It's been a few weeks since we last turned to John's Gospel, and when we did, we saw Jesus perform an amazing miracle, an astounding miracle. It was the sixth of the seven signs which John focuses on in his Gospel. That sixth sign was the raising of Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. And as he performed that sign, Jesus displayed his own love and concern for his friends. And more than that, he displayed the power over death that would soon be shown in a supreme way through his own resurrection from the dead. We also saw that not everyone was impressed and delighted by the sign Jesus performed in raising Lazarus. Jesus' opponents felt it put their own position and power under threat. They thought that Jesus' growing popularity might cause their Roman overlords to get nervous, thinking the Jews could rise up in rebellion with Jesus as their leader. The Romans might come and disrupt the cozy situation of the Jewish leaders, taking away their authority in Israel. And so, the high priest Caiaphas summed up the way forward for the Jewish leaders as he saw it. He said in chapter 11, after the raising of Lazarus, speaking about Jesus, it is better for one man to die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Meaning, yes, Jesus is one of our own, he's one of us, but we will sacrifice him to keep the Romans off our back. That was the resolution of the leaders in Israel. And that is the context for what we're going to read in our passage this morning. Their resolution hangs over what we're about to read. And John takes great care to let us know what we're about to read takes place just before the Passover. So let's pick up in John chapter 11, verse 55, and we'll read down to chapter 12, verse 19. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1079, and in the larger print Bibles, 1670. Chapter 11, verse 55. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews find out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. First, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now, the cry that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is God's word. And it records two incidents in the run-up to the final Passover of Jesus' life. We find the first of those incidents in chapter 11, verse 55, through to chapter 12, verse 11, showing us that Jesus is the King who is worthy of our most extravagant devotion. We've already noticed how John takes care to emphasize when these things are taking place. You can see that in chapter 11, verse 55, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. And the first verse of chapter 12 underlines that in case we missed it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. This is the time when all Israel is focused on what is arguably the most significant event in their whole calendar, the annual celebration of the exodus from Egypt. The day roughly 1,500 years before this, when the Israelites were saved by the sacrifice of a lamb. At God's command, each household slaughtered a lamb. They painted some of the blood on their doorposts. And that night, when God's judgment brought death to the land of Egypt, 
Those who sheltered under the blood of the Lamb were saved. God's judgment passed over them, leaving them unharmed. They were saved from death, and they were delivered from their terrible slavery in Egypt too, as they marched out of Egypt the next day. That defining event was celebrated in the annual Passover festival. And during the preparation for this Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, attends a special dinner in his honor. The dinner is held in the village of Bethany, less than two miles from Jerusalem. Chapter 11 focused on a particular family in the village of Bethany, a family Jesus loved, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. And these three are all present at this dinner party. Chapter 12, verse 2 tells us Martha is serving the meal. That is entirely in character for Martha. Luke's gospel tells us about another earlier visit to Bethany where Martha was also working hard to prepare and to serve a meal. Lazarus is chatting to Jesus at the table. That is his part in entertaining the honored guest. And Mary... Well, Mary does something outrageous. Look again at verse 3. Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Just allow yourself to picture this for a moment. The table is in the middle of the room. Jesus and the other guests are reclining round the table. They're not sitting on chairs. They're lying round the table, each of them propped up on one elbow, with their head nearest the table and their feet furthest away from the table. So they're like spokes on a wheel arranged around the table in the middle. Mary comes into the room with a large quantity, half a liter of this expensive perfume, and she pours it over Jesus. We're to understand that she pours all of it on Jesus because she ends up using her hair to try and mop it up. I don't know what your definition of expensive would be when it comes to perfume or aftershave. Some of you are going to say that five pounds is way too much to pay for smelly stuff. But being serious, when it comes to perfume, would you define expensive as 50 pounds? 100 pounds, maybe? Well, if that's the case, then we could call this perfume immensely expensive. Maybe even crazily expensive. Mental expensive. Because later in verse 5, we learn that this half liter of perfume is worth a year's wages. And commentators tell us we're talking here about an above average wage for this time. 
at the moment. Apparently, the average annual wage in the UK is just under £28,000. So to make it above average, let's round it up to £30,000. We don't know if Mary had saved up to buy this. The indications are that her family was fairly wealthy, so she may have had access to significant funds. Maybe it was a family heirloom she had inherited. But really, no matter how wealthy somebody is, unless they're at Jeff Bezos' level of wealth, this is an incredibly expensive item. And Mary blows all of it at once as she deluges Jesus with it. 30,000 pounds in today's money gone in a matter of seconds, poured over Jesus' feet. What do you make of that? What is your gut reaction to what Mary does? Before you worry about how you're supposed to think about this, what do you actually think about it? Well, don't we naturally think of other ways Mary might have used this? Other things she might have done with it? And when we realize Mary has chosen to do this with it, in a culture that is much, much poorer than our own culture today. A culture where utter poverty is widespread, where for many households, starvation was never far away. When we realize that, we might be tempted all the more to say, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? That's what one of Jesus' disciples says in verse 5. Never mind for the moment which disciple says it. Yes, it was Judas. But when Mark describes this incident in his gospel, he tells us Judas wasn't the only one thinking this. Some of the decent disciples were thinking it as well. We'll come back to Judas in a moment. At this point, notice how Jesus responds to Judas' words in verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. In verse 7, I think the gist of what Jesus is saying is, if this kind of thing is done at all, it might be done to honor a dead person to anoint their body before burial. Maybe Mary had even bought it for a future occasion like that, with that idea in her mind. But somehow, during this meal to honor me, Mary had an inkling that my burial is not far away. Somehow, Mary instinctively knew this was the time to use what she had. Not to save it up for some future day, but to use it now, while she still had time with me. 
And notice Jesus does not rebuke Mary at all. He does not say to Judas, well, yeah, you do have a point, Judas. It would have been better spent on other worthy causes, but it's done now. That was not Jesus' attitude at all. In fact, in verse 8, he says the perfume was better spent on him than on the poor. Jesus does not endorse Judas' attitude to what Mary did. Nor does he endorse our attitude when we're tempted to agree with Judas. So with that in mind, let's double back and consider what Mary did. She was in Jesus' presence, and in his presence she was overcome with love and devotion to him. To the extent that she poured out the very best she had on him. With no consideration of the immense cost involved. Not only that, Mary brought humiliation on herself. We've seen how others disapproved of her extravagance here, but they would certainly also have disapproved of the fact that she loosened her hair in front of everyone. That has no real significance in our culture today, but in this culture, it was a highly unconventional thing to do. It was highly frowned upon. It was the kind of thing a decent woman didn't do. But then, having loosened her hair, Mary used it to wipe Jesus' feet in front of everyone. So Mary's devotion was doubly extravagant. It was extravagant in terms of the cost of what she gave and the cost to her reputation in the eyes of others. Now, if we've been paying attention to John's gospel up to this point, we know in God's eyes, Mary's devotion is not over the top. It is not going too far. It is not misplaced in any way. How could she ever go too far for this man in front of her? This man who is God come in the flesh. This man who gave up all that was his by right in heaven to come and make his dwelling among us, to make God known to us, to give his life as the Lamb of God in order to save us from God's judgment and raise us up to eternal life. Could any of us ever go too far in our devotion to the eternal Son of God, this King of kings who humbled himself for our salvation? When you and I do set a limit to our devotion, when we say that's too much, the truth is we are more like Judas than we would like to think. In verse 6, John tells us the motivation behind Judas' objection to what Mary did. Judas was a thief, John tells us. He used to help himself to what was put into the money bag. It seems the contents of this money bag was used to support the disciples as they traveled around with Jesus. And it was used to give to the poor. 
In Luke's gospel, he tells us wealthy supporters of Jesus gave towards Jesus and the disciples' day-to-day needs. So when Judas says Mary's perfume should have been sold for the poor, what he really means is it should have gone in our money bag, which I'm in charge of, so I could have a bit more for myself. And when you or I decide to draw a line in our devotion to Jesus, isn't that our motivation too? We want a bit more for ourselves. When we curtail our devotion to Jesus, when we decide a certain level of devotion will be too extravagant, what we're doing is thieving from him so we can have more for ourselves. But maybe at this point you're feeling frustrated by this. Maybe you're thinking, okay, I see the point about devotion. I see that Mary's attitude is being contrasted with Judas's attitude. But how on earth can I follow Mary? Jesus was physically in front of her. He is not physically in front of me. I can't pour perfume on his feet and wipe it with my hair. If I want to follow Mary, how am I supposed to do it? It's a very good question. And the answer has to do with our motivation. We are not in a position to do anything physically for Jesus' body. We cannot serve him in that kind of way. But every single day, every one of us has responsibilities of one kind or another, don't we? And every one of us has resources of one kind or another. We all have responsibilities and we all have resources. And we have choices as to how we approach those responsibilities. We have choices as to what we do with those resources. So just pause for a moment and think yourself of two responsibilities you are facing right now. They might be long-term responsibilities, maybe a family responsibility. They might be one-off responsibilities that are coming up for you. Think of two things you have to do. Now think of two resources you have. Two things you can put to use in the way that you choose. It might be money, but it could certainly be plenty of other things. It might be some expertise that you have, some skill. It may be a material possession of some sort that you could put to use in several different ways. Again, think of two of those resources. And now let's think how we can apply our passage to the responsibilities and resources you have in your head. If you and I follow Judas, then our approach to our responsibilities is going to be, what's in this for me? What am I going to get out of this? 
Is this going to make me richer? Is this going to make me more comfortable? Is it going to give me a higher position? Because if not, why would I bother doing it? And if I can't get out of doing it, why would I do it well? Why would I put my best into it? If my boss doesn't require this, and if doing it isn't going to catch his eye, why would I bother? Yes, it might help someone else, but why put in costly effort if there's nothing in it for me? And if we follow Judas when it comes to our resources, we will be very precious about our time, our money, and our possessions, our home, our vehicle, whatever else. If we follow Judas with regard to those things, we're going to think, why would I share those resources with others? Why would I do that if it's going to leave me with less time to myself, less money for myself, less me space in my own home? In this world, to one degree or another, those are the normal ways of thinking about responsibilities and resources, aren't they? But if you and I come to share some of Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus, then whatever we do, we will do it for Him. And because we do it for Him, our attitude will be that no responsibility is too humiliating. No sacrifice is too costly. Mary wiped Jesus' feet. And if we follow her, we will not approach any responsibility as if it's below our dignity or below our pay grade. The Apostle Paul summed up what that means to follow in Mary's footsteps when he said this to the Ephesians. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. So whatever you do, don't do those things for your family. Don't do them for your boss. Don't do them for your patients or your pupils. Don't do them for your church leaders. Do them first and foremost for Jesus. Do them out of devotion to Him. That attitude will cause you and I to serve much more faithfully and energetically and graciously. The people we serve are not going to be short-changed when we serve them for Jesus' sake. Mary poured out what she had on Jesus. And if we follow her, we will not think that our resources belong to us to hoard and stockpile for a rainy day. We will use them unselfishly as if we were giving them to Jesus himself. 
When the Apostle Paul wrote a different letter to the church in Philippi, he mentioned gifts the church had given him. In his case, in his financial need, they had shared their own financial resources to support Paul. And Paul described those gifts as a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. As far as Jesus is concerned, those gifts given to Paul for Jesus' sake smelt just as beautiful as Mary's expensive perfume poured on Jesus' feet. That's the same when you and I use the resources we have for Jesus' sake. It is a fragrant offering to him. So if that's what it looks like for us to share Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus, how do we get that kind of devotion? How do we stir up our normally weak, half-hearted level of devotion until it slowly but surely inches closer to being extravagant devotion? Well, it turns out we can learn the pathway to extravagant devotion from Mary also. She not only shows us what extravagant devotion looks like, she shows us how to nurture it and fan it into flame. In our passage, we've seen Mary displaying her devotion on Jesus' feet. When we meet her at a previous meeting with Jesus in Luke's gospel, what is she doing there? Many of you will know that passage. Luke describes Mary as sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to what he said. You can read that in Luke chapter 10. The fact is, whenever we meet Mary in the New Testament, she is always at Jesus' feet, every time. And I don't think it's any stretch to say her commitment to listening to Jesus is what produced her extravagant devotion to him. None of us will ever develop devotion to Jesus if we don't learn to sit at his feet and listen. And when we do that, we learn this truth that feeds our devotion. Jesus is the king who showed the most extravagant devotion to bring us perfect peace. So let's sit at Jesus' feet as he does what he does next in our passage. Having enjoyed a dinner in his honor in the village of Bethany, verse 12 tells us the next day he travels the two miles to Jerusalem. Remember, at this point, the city is rammed. It's rammed with people who have come from all over for the Passover festival. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus describes one Passover when he says there were over two and a half million people in Jerusalem. Now, even if that's an inflated figure from Josephus, there is no doubt at all the city is heaving at this point. And a decent portion of those people have heard that Jesus raised Lazarus took place recently, and it took place not far from Jerusalem. 
And that is what prompts their enthusiastic welcome for Jesus in verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. These people are not waving palm branches because they happen to be the closest thing to hand. Nor are they waving them because they were on offer at the local garden center. No, palm branches had particular significance at this point in Israel's history. They signified the people's hope for a Messiah. Particularly a strong military Messiah who would lead their nation to victory and liberation through war. So this is just what the Jewish leaders had feared when Jesus raised Lazarus. This whole thing is stirring up nationalist revolutionary excitement. The crowd shout blessings on Jesus. They call on him to save them. That's what Hosanna means. Save us. And they proclaim him as the Lord's anointed king. The king of Israel. How does Jesus respond to that? Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, that these things had been done to him. In other words, John says, at the time, we didn't grasp the significance of what Jesus did. The significance only became clear to us later as we realized it was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. That's the book John quotes from in verse 15. So here the crowd are fired up with nationalistic excitement. They hope Jesus will be a violently victorious leader for them. But Jesus chooses not a war horse suitable for a military leader, he chooses a donkey. Apparently not even a fully grown one. A young donkey, a donkey's colt. Jesus chooses to arrive in humility, not in impressive glory. And by doing that, Jesus is showing what kind of king he is and what he's come to bring. He has come to bring salvation to save his people, but not by crushing his enemies. Jesus will bring salvation by allowing himself to be crushed by his enemies. A few days from now at Passover, Jesus will give himself to be slaughtered as the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all this is in line with Zechariah's prophecy. You can read it in Zechariah chapter 9. We read part of it at the very beginning this morning. It's a prophecy of a king who brings salvation. He is victorious, Zechariah says, 
but his victory comes through his humility. He saves his people by the blood of his covenant, Zechariah says. And this king brings perfect peace to his people. That's why verse 15 says, do not be afraid. This king brings perfect peace. And he brings it through his own extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion that led him to lay down his life for his people's salvation. When you and I sit at Jesus' feet, when we listen to his words, when we look at him as he's presented to us in Scripture, as he's presented to us here, entering Jerusalem to lay down his life in humility for our salvation, as we sit at Jesus' feet like this, we are getting to know him. As I believe Mary got to know him, it was surely Mary's knowledge of Jesus that gave her that inkling at the banquet that his death was near. That if she was going to use this precious, precious perfume, this was the day to use it. To honor him with her most extravagant devotion. With what she had. And as you and I listen to Jesus and look at him and get to know him, this is what will move us to ever-increasing devotion in our own situation with whatever it is that we have. I know it's already January the 8th, but it is not too late to make a serious commitment for the year ahead. Let's commit to fuel our devotion to Jesus this year by getting to know him better through the words of Scripture, by sitting at his feet this year and discovering, maybe for the first time, maybe in new ways, that he is beautiful. That he is worthy. That he is full of saving love. Let's make it a priority this year to sit at his feet. And as our devotion to him grows, let's pour it out for him. And the way we approach our responsibilities and the way we use our resources. Our last two songs give us the opportunity to respond to this. They give us a way of putting our commitment into words. We're going to sing, I will offer up my life, and then take my life. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
And as you live with that commitment, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.